Hello, and welcome to the Limbic Podcast. In this episode, we're discussing whether medical school training equips doctors with the skills they need for the working world and how to better prepare young medics for the realities of frontline NHS care. We have with us junior doctor and anaesthetics trainee, Luke Austin. He's the author of a new book, The Bleep Test, which makes the case for the skills junior doctors need in addition to their medical knowledge. It combines his first-hand experience with the evidence on how to manage issues such as decision fatigue, making mistakes and breaking bad news. Thanks for joining us, Luke. We'll get into the detail of all this in a minute, but first I wanted to set the scene. A BMA survey recently reported that four in ten junior doctors are planning to quit. The NHS post-pandemic is under particular strain. Can you explain what it's like for junior doctors working in the NHS at the moment? Obviously, the service is really struggling, and and that was something that was happening actually even before COVID arrived. The volume of patients attending hospital is really high, and is probably only going to get higher, which of course is partly for demographic reasoning reasons with with an aging population. Um, but the the sort of structure of the services and um, the you know system wide factors such as lack of beds, um, poor infrastructure, departments that are not not um, fit for purpose anymore is making it an incredibly difficult environment in which to do the job. You open the book talking about Black Wednesday, that that day in August when new doctors start their first day on the wards. You know, whether there's an impact on patient safety or not, and the, the jury is still out on that. Tell me why this was your starting point. It, I felt that it made a good starting point for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that you know, the book um, is semi-chronological and roughly follows the course of the first two years after qualifying but I do jump around in time quite a bit and move around um but it's, it's a clear starting point that everyone can remember as their first day uh, you know turning up to the hospital and being handed the ID badge um the code to the doors on the ward and suddenly having this responsibility of having qualified as a doctor and not being a student anymore um but the second, the second kind of bigger reason for thinking about um, Black Wednesday as a starting point for the book is that since these studies have been published, it is true that junior doctors have in the back of their minds this perception, wh- whether it's based in fact or otherwise, that their supposed collective incompetence as a group of new starters may be putting um, patients at risk, which you know, it's, it's not a good feeling to be starting off with after six years of intense training that um, despite it all, you might actually be a ready-made disaster for your first batch of patients. So this this gulf between the, the theory you learn in medical school and the, the reality of working as a doctor, how can we better equip doctors to, to manage that transition? I think the first stage is probably just by talking about it and acknowledging it. Um, which, which you know, clearly by itself is not enough, but it's, it's an important place to start. Um, at the beginning of the book, I talk about this idea of the hidden curriculum, which is this sort of collection of untaught competencies, which probably fill that gulf between qualifying as a doctor at the end of medical school and actually feeling safe and settled working as one. Um, a lot of these areas that form the hidden curriculum are quite underexplored and undiscussed. Um, or if they are discussed, they're not ex- discussed explicitly and openly, and they tend to be the things that people might ask their you know, senior doctors or um, or senior colleagues about in the coffee room, but don't ever really get discussed in an open forum. And you know, the, my sort of initial initial feeling when I when I came to start writing the book was that when people start working on the first day, 
when they're qualified what they're not what they're worried about is not actually how do i manage acute chest pain what do i do if a patient's short of breath or has had a seizure what they're really worried about is what if i don't know what to do what if i make a mistake what if i make a mistake that causes harm to a patient how can i possibly think and make decisions when i'm exhausted at 3 a.m in the morning um what do i do if the patient if i think the patient's dying um and and they need help to to make the patient comfortable um and also how do i manage the stress that this um job will inevitably generate um over the course of, of a long career um so i think i think it's all these sort of much deeper um more complex questions that people are really worrying about rather than the sort of factual um sort of medical stuff that's that's with, that we're taught in in biomedical science um, and then in clinical school um so acknowledging that it's these really difficult areas that are actually the issue is is the first part and 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 starting conversations about them yeah so i think one of the first um sort of aspects of that that you mention in the book is around um sort of learning from mistakes and almost this starting point that you have to accept that you are going to make mistakes that that's inevitable that that's kind of part of part of becoming a better doctor um I guess my question is how sort of how ideally would junior doctors sort of better be supported to do that or to approach learning from mistakes or kind of, you know, get over those anxieties that you might have um, about making those mistakes in the first place? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because accepting that we will make mistakes goes against what's probably in most of our slightly perfectionist natures. Um and of course, we want to get it right every time for every patient, and that's you know what we should what we should be aspiring to do. Um, but we're humans, and that's not possible. So mistakes will occur along the way, and most of the time they're associated with either zero or minimal actual patient harm. But occasionally they're not, and occasionally they they may well have led to um, you know some degree of suboptimal outcome for a patient. It comes down to, I think, the forums in which they're discussed and the attitudes and cultures that are present in the department that, that are holding those forums. One, one of the best ways to learn is to learn from all of your peers' mistakes so that you don't all have to make the same mistake to get the learning. But of course, that then requires a really open culture where everybody feels comfortable to sit in a room and say, yeah, I, I, messed, this, I messed this up, I got this wrong. Um, let's talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I think being able to learn from other people's mistakes that you sort of um, experience vicariously um, or that you witness is is quite useful. Um, and as people get more senior, you actually find that some of the really senior consultants who you know who have thought about this stuff are actually the ones that feel quite comfortable saying, "Yeah, when I was your age, I did X, Y, and Z, and this is what I learned from it." Yeah. And have you found, because obviously you've done rotations now in your training through different hospitals, have you found and different departments even that there are there's quite a variation in in how um that's approached, you know, in those cultures of of how oh, you know, willing some a junior doctor might feel in admitting to a mistake. I think I mean I mean firstly it's sort of the you know the classic thing that um hospital departments offer us something called a morbidity and mortality meeting. Um, but that actually tends to be you know quite consultant led, talking about, you know, 
um, decisions that have been made at the senior level um, that various consultants have made that have led to whichever outcomes. Um, often these discussions, understandably and quite rightly, are you know, had by the consultants and the juniors invited to sit in and listen for, for their own learning. But actually, you know, it may be useful if there was some kind of forum about you know, lesser mistakes that are still relevant um, to be held amongst the more junior members of the team. Um, even things that you know haven't led to you know huge degrees of morbidity and haven't haven't led to a patient dying, and it might still be useful to sort of have a have an opportunity to to meet as as a group and to speak about them. Um, in terms of variation, yes, you, you you do get subcultures within cultures, and you notice sort of mark differences in the levels of what's you know referred to as psychological safety. Um, in between between different departments, even within the same hospital. Um, and I mean, in anaesthesia and critical care, we like to think that we're you know, quite progressive and quite um, open and um, sort of at the for forefront of being able to talk about these things. But yeah, that's that's my bias. Um, but yeah, diff I mean, diff different specialties probably are slightly different lengths along this particular track um, in terms of getting to where we need to be in, in, in creating an environment where people do feel able to um, speak about mistakes. Um, I mean, interesting. Yeah. The reason I mentioned psychological safety. I mean, the the, re, the um, researcher who first came up with that term, which was um, Amy Edmondson, just describes how when she was looking at teams in healthcare, the ones that had higher rates of error ostensibly were actually the higher performing teams. And she started to ask, well, what's going, what's going on here? Why are the better teams having more errors? And actually what it was was they were just reporting more because they felt able to speak up and talk about their errors and, and report them. And the hidden ingredient which enabled them to do that was what she then went on to term psychological safety. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about that kind of moves us onto the, you know, one of the other key issues that you talk about in the book, and that's exhaustion and decision fatigue. Um, you go into a lot of detail on this and kind of practical tips as well for kind of recognizing when you're at a point where you're, you're not making good decisions anymore and um, things that you can do to try and kind of mitigate the exhaustion you feel from night shifts, for example. And um, junior doctors are, of course, particularly vulnerable to this because of the shift patterns that they're working, the amount of hours they're working. Um, you know, although you go into all those details about things that junior doctors can do to help themselves, isn't this really kind of a system problem due to kind of overwork and um, you know, pressures in the pressures in the health service? Yes, absolutely. Um, um so, so as we kind of said at the beginning, the the pressures the service is under, I've broadly taken as to be the sort of the setting to this story and that there are there are definitely points in the book where I, where I talk about what needs to be done at a sort of a macro level and on a policy level, but you know it's it's not the book's not a polemic and it's I thought you know it would have been quite easy to reel out a couple of hundred pages of statistics and studies saying exactly how broken the system is and you know and why is the system that makes it so so difficult because because it, it absolutely is. You know, if you if you, clearly if, you, if you've got enough um, staff covering the hospital at night, and you've got a degree of redundancy in the system, then that's going to be the key thing that will facilitate people being able to take their three times half hour breaks, which is what you're supposed to have over the course of a twelve and a half hour night shift. 
Um, so, so it does come down a lot to the system, doesn't it? Um, however, um, I, I sort of thought that what I needed to try and write was something that's useful in the here and now and in the situation in which we find ourselves and I'll try and answer the question of in this very difficult situation and with these very difficult conditions, is there anything that, that can be done um, if if we don't have the, the ideal um, settings and the ideal resources? Um, what can we be doing to try and make things easier for ourselves? So, and that kind of led to the discussion about decision fatigue, um, which which can happen over any long shift. Actually, it doesn't have to be a night shift, um, and because I mean it is, you know, related to but distinct from just physiological fatigue and tiredness. Um, so, decision fatigue can occur on any long shift, but it's it's sat quite nicely in the night shift chapter. Um, so, I, I started thinking, what can you do to um, help your decision making over this kind of shift and that's the thing sort of you know pairing back decisions and limiting decisions to own owning the ones that absolutely need to be made um right now to sharing decision making in uh, with seniors and bringing more people in, into the discussion um there's a bit in the book where we talk about um some studies that looked at micro breaks um and some of those studies quite interesting have been done in, in surgeons operating which found that you know they their decisions to take small breaks during the operating um actually improved their um results but didn't increase the overall time spent doing the procedure because essentially the breaks pay for themselves because the decision making is is restored by taking a couple of minutes away yeah i mean these psychological skills that you talk about through the book so this isn't kind of the theory of you know the your medical knowledge but skills like breaking bad news how to prioritize tasks um how to know when you're not making good decisions anymore um kind of mitigating exhaustion all those kind of things you know doctors need these clearly to work on their wards as they start to rotate around these different different specialties when they come out of medical school should there be more focus on these at medical school i guess is my my first question before um junior doctors even start um, and also beyond that, so support to develop these skills further during those during training, especially in those in those early days. I think the medical school curriculum is probably quite crowded as it is, um, but there would I think there would be a place for these kind of um, issues and skills in in the last couple of years as people start to prepare for actual real world practice. And then certainly, you know, it'd be useful to continue talking about these skills, teaching them and developing them as we become postgraduate doctors in, in the early years of training. Because I think there are a few you know, sim simple things which which we can be doing um, that can just make things that, that little bit easier when when the going gets really tough. Absolutely. And I think there was also one aspect you discussed which really struck me as being more about something for senior clinicians to solve and address rather than junior doctors themselves. And that's the issue of civility. So you're asking kind of a senior member of the team for help. You're calling them in the middle of the night because you're not sure what's happening with the patient, et cetera. And um, the person on the other end of the phone, for whatever reason, is being quite rude to you or dismissive to you. And you talk about the research of how that in itself 
is bad for patient safety. And we've seen this in various kind of inquiries that have happened after patient safety issues in the NHS, um, that civility in teams is important. Um, but yeah, that's that's a lot of that's kind of outside the junior doctor's control, right? Yes. I mean, I think as, as far as, you know, uh, the, the culture within a department is likely to have been, you know, largely set and established by the people that have been in that department for some time. Um, and and particularly, we know that the more senior someone is up a hierarchy, the more their behaviour and their attitudes impacts on others. Um, so that's true. But it's not to say that, you know, when you come into a department, you can't sort of you know, help set the tone by the way we behave ourselves. I and mean, we've all got a responsibility to be you know, kind and civil to our colleagues. And even if you know, an environment is less than ideal, when we rotate into the department, we still have to you know, try and bring our best selves to work in that sense. But yeah, I mean, clearly, yeah, as you say, senior doctors, you know, do have a really key role in sort of setting the tone for how people treat each other within a team. And, and we know that that is safety critical. Fantastic. It's been really interesting to talk to you. And just to kind of round up here, obviously, for any medical students coming to the end of their um, sort of medical school training um, this summer, about to enter those first placements, what would be sort of a one sort of key thing that you would hope they would take away from um, from your book? I think that the probably one of the key messages of the book is that there's a huge gulf between knowing the medicine in theory and actually getting it to happen in real life. And most of bridging that gap comes down to the fact that humans are humans and we're humans dealing with other humans. And when you're going into your final placements in the, the last few months of medical school, I think there's a lot to be learned just by watching and thinking about the interactions that are happening and thinking, you know, what's an example of really good practice and what's an example of perhaps less good practice and what, what can we learn just from seeing the way a really good team functions. Um, and, you know, in healthcare, I mean, something else that we should talk, touch on in the book is that in healthcare, we're quite fixated on learning from when things have gone wrong, but actually there's loads of learning to be had from when things are going right. And, even if you're just standing in the corner of an operating theatre and seeing a really slick operation that looks like an F1 pit stop, there's a huge amount to be learned from you know, why that actually happened. Why did that work so well? What was it that allowed those people to perform in that way? And taking little bits of that to then build into, into your own work going forwards. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. If anyone no, is interested, yeah, it's been fantastic. Very interesting. If anyone is interested in in reading the book, it's The Bleep Test, published by Taylor and Francis and uh, by Dr. Luke Austin, and it's available now. Okay, bye for now, everyone. Bye.